Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Luke 17, 20 to 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And so the Jews, they may have had a, a kind of shared understanding of the kingdom. They would have, some have tied it to a particular place, such as the temple. I think they would have all, in some way, seen the land of Israel equated with the kingdom or symbolic of the kingdom. But the kingdom of God, you know, what we mean by that is the rule of God. The exercise of God's sovereignty, that place where God is in control. And maybe the Pharisees would have associated this exercise of authority, especially with the Torah, with the law, or with keeping the written and the oral tradition. That would have been the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not hold to the oral tradition. Sadducees would have identified the kingdom with the temple. They would have seen that's the place where God is setting up his rule. And of course the Sadducees had a lot at stake in the temple. That was the center of political life. It was the center of a kind of hierarchy. That the closer you were to the temple, the closer you were to power. And as a group, the Sadducees, they were identified uniformly with the wealthy, with the upper classes, and not with the common people. And because they were largely derived from the aristocracy, probably they had little influence over the Jewish population as a whole. Whereas the Pharisees, they would have been among the common people. And thus, we see Jesus commonly running into the Pharisees because they saw themselves as an alternative to the priestly class and the temple and in opposition, in a sense, to the Sadducees. So Pharisees connected the kingdom of God with the symbolism of the law. Where people keep the law, well, that's where God reigns. And the Sadducees connected the kingdom to the symbolism of the temple. And I'm using the word symbolism here because I think they both assigned a symbolic importance. They understood that this thing that they clung to was not the reality. And they both would have assigned a symbolic importance to the land of Israel. And of course, Jesus' teaching is that the kingdom is in your midst or that it is within you in some translations. And this does not accord with either group. Jesus identifies the kingdom with himself as he is going to bring about the direct reign of God. And so Jesus' ministry begins in the Gospels with the announcement that he's ushering in the kingdom. So in Mark 1.15, Jesus says, 
when he begins preaching, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And of course we know John the Baptist, as he announces the coming of Jesus, is saying the same thing. Jesus is ushering in the kingdom. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies surrounding the kingdom. For example, in Isaiah 9, 6-7, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And of course, that language you know, that here is, he's identified with God. He's identified with the prince who is ushering in peace. It says there will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. He's going to reign, not just over Israel, but over the cosmos, over all the earth. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. That is, here is what the kingdom of David pointed to, was the kingdom fulfilled in Christ to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So Jesus, we believe, is the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. It's an endless kingdom in which God's rule encompasses all people and all things. And of course what I'm describing is very much in contrast to the Jews who believed that the land identified the kingdom, or the temple identified the kingdom, or the law identified the kingdom. In his ministry of healing and casting out demons, we see that Jesus sees this, he identifies this with the kingdom. In Matthew 12, 8, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is, the Spirit of God is gaining sovereignty through the healing ministry, the casting out of demons. Luke 10, 9, a similar verse. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So that as the apostles go out and begin healing people, oh, well the kingdom is spreading. In Matthew, Jesus even teaches us to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our prayer, our daily prayer. And his promise at the end of his ministry looks forward to the church, the day of Pentecost, and the establishment of the kingdom. He says in Mark 9.1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. We presume that he's referring to the day of Pentecost when the kingdom does indeed, you know, come with power, with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then in Revelation there is a picture of the final establishment of the kingdom. But notice where it's established. This is a Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is, the, the kingdom of heaven comes to earth and encompasses all the earth. The point is that Jesus ushers in the kingdom. The kingdom is here, 
and the kingdom is being established and it will be finally established. Jesus assigns no symbolic importance to either the Torah or the temple. In fact, his is not even, it, it's not a symbolic depiction at all, but it is a personal and direct realization. He's saying the kingdom of God is here. God's reign has begun with me. And Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God then through his personal presence in Israel, among the Jews, among the Gentiles, and for the world. And so Jewish identity today, you know, is still, like it was in the second century, tied to the land for many. And this is not unusual, you know, Faith and I in Japan, we saw this, that any little grove of trees, it could be a sacred grove, and they would have a shrine there. Or Mount Fuji was thought to be a special mountain. Or Mount Scuba, where we live, the gods descended upon Mount Scuba. And so for many religions like Judaism, you know, sacred shrines, temples, sacred groves, sacred mountains, sacred land. This is thematic in the world's religions and in Judaism. But of course, this is not Christianity. As the Washington Post noted this week, prominent Israeli officials have called not only for the defeat of Hamas, but for the annihilation of Gaza, the starving of its population, and the removal of Palestinians from some or all of its territory. The Israeli president suggested that the civilians in the Hamas-controlled territory are not innocent. That is, they're all guilty. It doesn't matter if they're two years old, five years old, or infants. They are guilty because they are in Israel and they're Palestinian. As a speaker put it, and this was a, before like a quarter of a million Jews, we are the mother who is not willing to rip her child to shreds. We are the true mothers of Jerusalem. And of course he's referencing the passage in Kings, in 1 Kings, when Solomon is presented with the infant, and he said, shall I slice it in two? And the quote comes from when the time Bill Clinton proposed that East Jerusalem be divided between Israel and a Palestinian state. But for some Jews, the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem, it cannot be shared. It would be the equivalent of Solomon slicing that child in half. It's their land, they think, by divine fiat. And that is that modern Zionism would attach the kingdom to the land of Israel. And for some Jews, like the Sadducees, they're still, they literally believe that the temple will be restored. That is Zionists of both the Jewish and Christian type, Christian Zionists. I'm afraid they trade the symbol for the reality. Second century Jews understood the Messiah would usher in the reality. The priests and Sadducees, they would have focused on the cleanliness of the temple, you know, but they understood that it was symbolic. 
The Pharisees considered themselves kind of alternative priests with an alternative mode of cleanliness. But I think they too understood this is symbolic, pointing toward the Messiah. There were also the Jews of the Qumran community in Jesus' day. And they considered Herod's temple completely corrupt. And the Jews of their day, including the Sadducees and the Pharisees, as corrupt. And they looked forward to the establishment of a new temple and true purification. And the Qumran community, of course, they separated themselves entirely from the Jerusalem temple and from the Sadducees or any surrounding the temple, the hierarchy surrounding the temple. They thought the temple is no longer the seat of the law. Israel has not followed the correct law because it's not rooted in the right temple. They're in the wrong temple. But even if we go back, you know, to Solomon's temple, this I don't think is to be taken as an end in itself. And I think Solomon understood this and the Jews understood this. Solomon proclaims that God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. Isaiah, and Isaiah is giving voice to God, says the same thing, that we understand the temple, the priests, the sacrifices. This is symbolic in 66, 1-2. God does not dwell in temples. Both Stephen and Paul, by the way, in Acts, they reference this verse in Isaiah 66. Stephen is saying it to Jews, you know, on the day when he gets stoned. He said, well, we know this was all symbolic. We know that God is working for a greater purpose. And he points to Jesus. And of course, they stone him. And Paul then was standing there at the stoning of Stephen. But Paul is going to say a very similar thing as Stephen does. But Paul is actually talking to Gentiles. He says that God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. He does not dwell literally. You know, no place contains God. In him we live and move and have our being. And so the temple as symbolic. I think it's accentuated with the controversy surrounding the second temple. And what we mean by the second temple. The first temple was, was Solomon's temple. The second temple is Herod's temple. It revolved not so much, or represented not so much the power of God, but even, you know, in people's eyes of that time, like those in the Qumran community, many saw what they saw, that it was considered by many to be corrupt. But of course, the closer one could position themselves to the temple, the greater power they exercised, but this was not spiritual power. And this was, you know, in the estimate of the Pharisees, the Samaritans, the Qumran community, maybe many of the Jews saw the temple as corrupt and the priesthood as corrupt. Because they, they understood the priestly power flowed from Rome, from Herod, who was under the control of Rome. The wealthiest priests, you know, with their family, they lived literally in conjunction with the temple. There were bridges from the western wall leading you know, to Jerusalem's upper city and then leading to the temple. And the prominent ruling priestly families had homes then directly adjacent to the temple. This is from Josephus, who was 
uh, first century Jew. In antiquities, he indicates Herod and then Rome that they actually kept direct control. You know, the vestments and all of those symbolic clothing the priests wore. Guess who kept it? Well, the Romans kept it or Herod kept it. But the priests did not have direct access even to the symbolism of their robes. And Rome maintained a fortress right next to the temple, fortified by extra troops, you know, that on festival days, Roman presence was very much there. And so there may have been, we don't know, but there may have been a kind of unanimous understanding surrounding Solomon's temple. But around the temple in Jesus' day, there was a great deal of contention as to whether the second temple was accomplishing or corrupting its purposes. But what was probably clear to all was that the temple was a long way from God's kingdom and rule. And so when Jesus comes and proclaims that he is the true temple, that he is the true sacrifice, that he contains the law, well, this is exactly the kind of language they would have expected from the Messiah. Jesus' kingdom ushering in the rule and sovereignty of God, it was clearly not tied to a particular land, to the temple, to the particular people, the Jews. But this was a message to be preached to the ends of the earth. This kingdom is cosmic and universal. And it, I guess, never occurred to anyone to localize it. But in fact, we have, you know, that each new group of believers, this is in 1 Peter, that each little church community thought of themselves as God's temple. This is 1 Peter 2, 4-5. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Here is the true temple. Here is the true sacrifice. Here is the true kingdom. And of course, Peter is not writing to Jews. He's writing to Christians. Every new group of believers... We're a temple community spreading the kingdom of God, spreading the domain of God's rule. As Paul describes in Colossians 1, 19 to 20, Christ's rule is cosmic. It's all inclusive. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things, all lands, all peoples, all of the cosmos to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This is a cosmic kingdom. Jesus not only did not concern himself with observing, you know, he didn't even observe the boundaries of Israel. He would go into Samaria. He didn't concern himself with ritual boundaries, such as food laws. He didn't concern himself with time boundaries, like the Sabbath. He didn't concern himself with the laws of cleanliness, or the special 
role ascribed there to priests, scribes, and Pharisees. But we find among his followers, Jews of every kind. You know, when we say the Jews, well, just look at the followers of Jesus and see how you would identify these people. There were the Zealots, maybe the first century Zionists. There were those who consorted with Rome, Matthew, the tax collector, kind of a fifth columnist. There was the Pharisees, represented by Paul, but actually there were many Pharisees. There was the representation of the Sanhedrin in the person of Nicodemus, who we believe was a follower of Jesus. All of this to say Jesus was not concerned with the various arguments among the Jews about, oh, what is the holy place? You know, what is it, the temple? Is it Herod's temple? He was not concerned with modes of ritual cleanliness. Oh, should we wash before supper? How much should we wash? He was not concerned about with whom he ate, whether they were people who kept the law or whether they were harlots, tax collectors. Jesus had come to unite all of these people, but not by litigating their arguments, not by saying, well, you're right and you're wrong, but he's going to put the discussion in a different register. Look at Luke eleven thirty nine. They're arguing about the law. The Pharisees are saying, well, this is the way that we're supposed to do it. But the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. He's condemning the whole attitude, the point of the Pharisees. And by the way, the Pharisees may have been the best you get. Because Jesus spends a lot of time with the Pharisees. But to these who may be the best, he's saying, well, you've got it wrong. And the Pharisees were concerned with the rituals. And of course, the rituals, they're trying to bring about a cleansing of the land, of the people. They see the place as polluted. And they imagine that through a ritual cleanliness that they can in some way bring about the kingdom of God. But Jesus dismisses their concerns. And he focuses not on the land, not on the outward rituals, but on human interiority. What comes out of a man's mouth and not what goes in is what's important. Jesus abrogated the food laws. And so the mode to purity in Jesus' system is not through a sacred place, a sacred temple, sacred rituals, a sacred land, a sacred building. It's through himself. Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God. At the beginning of John, you remember Jesus goes into the temple and he disrupts the offerings being offered on the Day of Atonement? And then he points to himself as true temple. This is John 2.19. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John tells us he meant the temple of his body. Meaning here is true temple and the resurrection is the ushering in of the true temple and kingdom. And so the temple incident, you know, Jesus going, it's not really about cleaning up Herod's temple. I don't think Jesus cared about Herod's temple. 
any more than the Pharisees did. Nor is it about getting rid of coin exchange. Remember Jesus held up the coin and says, whose image is upon it? Well, it's Caesar's image. And in the temple, you could not have an image of any kind that was brought into the temple. So it was really not about the animals or the coins. Such trade, I don't think, was wrong in and of itself. But rather, I think his words and actions, they have to be seen as a kind of critique of the entire sacrificial system. That is, this system is coming to an end. And Jesus talks this way, and we know what happens in 70 AD. The Jewish response indicates as much as they do not question. They say, you know, they don't ask uh, why, you know, that he should be doing these things. He said, well, what sign will you give us? By which authority do you do this? They're looking for the Messiah. And they did not take his action as some sort of violent assault on the temple, but they presumed it called for a legitimating sign of authority like that with Moses, you know, signs and wonders. And so they too knew the prophecies concerning the end of sacrifice, the limitation of the efficacy of the temple, of animal sacrifice. And Jesus is declaring the end, I think, as he is true temple and sacrifice. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It represents an act of the rejection of the most important rite of the Israelite cult. But a fulfillment, not simply a rejection. And therefore a statement that there is a means of atonement other than the daily whole offering. This is now null. They always understood this was symbolic. But Jesus says the reality is here. And the particular pollution that Jesus cleanses from, you know, the cult of the temple, the sacrifice, the law, they could not accomplish the real cleansing from sin and death. In brief, John is identifying the life, that is, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's the resurrection. It's life given through Christ. The life God provides in Christ. The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist says. Fusing the day of the atonement and the, the Passover feast. Here is all of the rituals of the temple bundled up in the reality of Christ. Who really takes away the sin of the world. The life of God as the rescue from sin and death. That's the way that sins are really taken away. And not just ritually. And so it's precisely assignment to a sacred place that Jesus challenges. There is no sacred temple. There is no true sacred land. In that he himself now occupies and opens up life to all people everywhere. Now, did the Hebrew Bible teach of a holy land? You know, certainly it did. And maybe the Jews attached a literal understanding. Many Jews today retain a focus on the land of Israel as an essential part of Jewish identity. But the radical difference Jesus introduces challenges this entire understanding. Jesus and Christianity broke from Jewish attachment to sacred places. 
such as the temple and the land. Christ and Christianity universalize Judaism. And so they are not attached to a land, a place, a space, a building. This is what Jesus explains to the woman of Samaria. And of course the Samaritans had their own temple and they were in an argument with the Sadducees and the Jews about which temple is correct. Jesus says, but an hour is coming and is now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Those who worship attached to holy buildings, holy land, they're missing the true spiritual worshipers that Jesus describes. I believe that Christian Zionists are missing the truth of Christianity. The creation of the modern state of Israel and the ongoing displacement ethnic cleansing, slaughter of Palestinians, supported by Christian Zionists, it raises once again the question of the role of Christianity. What is this religion that we have? Is it tied to a land? Is it a colonial understanding? Doesn't Jesus challenge the whole fusion of the sacred with particular places? He does not confirm this understanding. The clear and obvious teaching of the New Testament. It certainly does not accord with Zionism, nor does it accord with the history of Christian colonialism, which, by the way, are very much tied into each other. Christ is not behind the idea that lands and peoples are to be conquered in his name. And, of course, this wipes out a lot of the history of the spread of the Catholic and the Protestant religion and the colonialism involved in each, in which lands have been conquered and peoples removed in the name of Christ. It does not accord with widespread support of Israel and its ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. And so God's purposes are not localized in a chosen land. They are realized through the gift of Jesus Christ, his son, to all people everywhere. This is the gospel, and anything counter to this is not the gospel. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.